Open your Bibles, if you would, Mark chapter 8. Um, we're continuing in our study of this gospel, um, all the while asking the question. A few visitors here might not be aware of this. Uh, we've been asking the question throughout Mark's gospel, what does this tell us about Jesus? What is Mark trying to convey to us about our Savior? Well, in this text this morning, um, Jesus is actually going to address that very question with his disciples. He will ask the question, who do you say I am? Let's, let's talk about who I am. And so it will be a very um, relevant passage, I think, for our concerns. In fact, the question that Jesus will put to his disciples in this passage, uh, who do men say that I am? I w- or who do you, rather, who do you say that I am? He asked them both questions. But the particular question, who do you say that I am, is one of the two most relevant questions any person, two most important questions anybody can ever be asked, that any of us can ever attempt to answer. One of the two most important questions. So that leads you to think, well, what's the other one? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. That other really, really important question. So let's get right to the text. Acts chapter 8, rather Mark chapter 8, beginning in the 27th verse. And Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. First lesson today, it's not the core lesson, but it is a lesson today. Do not get in a rebuking contest with Jesus. He will win every time. Totally aside. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. And he summoned the multitude with him and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his, his Father and with the holy angels. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, as we look to it, we simply pray that we would hear from you, Lord. Father, as we would endeavor to serve you and, and to walk out our faith in a way that's consistent with your intentions for our lives, Lord, we need your help to do that. So we look to your word this morning. We look to your spirit to instruct us. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, as we looked at the first part of this chapter, we noted, if you were with us, a very drastic change in Jesus' teaching style. Through the first seven chapters, his teaching style had been classic rabbinical teaching, just making these you know, very straightforward statements. Sower went out to sow, tell a parable. Your faith has made you well. Straightforward statement. Didn't ask a whole lot of questions. But in the eighth chapter, that changes drastically. 
And Jesus is suddenly asking question after question. I think we counted 14 or 15 questions in this chapter, which I believe is more than in all the seven chapters that preceded it. Now, that in and of itself doesn't mean much. I mean, so he changed from, you know, a rabbinical style to asking questions. That, but there's a reason for the change, and that should draw our attention. And that change is in the nature of his ministry itself. Um, most scholars would talk about the first seven chapters into the first eighth chapter of Mark's gospel, the preparatory phase. He's preparing his disciples. He's preparing them for what's going to come and what's going to follow after that. Well, now he changes. His time in the north is coming to an end. He's turning his face towards Jerusalem, as Luke puts it, where crucifixion awaits him. He's making that change, and so his style of ministry changes because the demands placed on his disciples is, are going to change. So there's a reason for that change. Jesus has been saying a lot of things and doing a lot of things to point it out who he was, to demonstrate who he was and is. And now he shifts in the discussion... We looked at the first 10 questions, 11 questions last week. We're going to look at the last four this week. And in these last four questions of the chapter, he shifts the discussion from who am I to what does that mean? When Peter asserts you are the Christ, what does that mean? The question of meaning takes center stage. And the implications of that answer to that question, what it means, um, are impossible to overstate. Those are the two questions we have to answer. Who do we say Jesus is, and what does that mean? No questions in life can be more important than those. Uh, Jim Elliott, missionary and martyr, famously wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Now that's great if it's true. And by true, I don't mean simply in an abstract or a theoretical way. But if it's true in that it actually has traction in our lives, if that's the kind of decision we have to make day by day, Eliot's words are extremely powerful. And Jesus' statement in, in this passage, the things that our Lord says and does demonstrate that Eliot was simply was surely correct, right? So what we want to do first, take just a few minutes, look at the context of what is being said, make sure we get that right, and then consider these four questions. And the pattern is two questions, this thing in the middle, this exchange with Peter, and then two more questions, the last two questions. And it's that process that will lead us to see the importance of the statement, thou art the Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to confess that Jesus is the Christ? Okay? And then, of course, from there we can ask the question how it speaks to us. So let's set context first just quickly. Jesus is still on the move. He's still trying to get this alone time with his disciples. They've gone north. They've gone east. They've gone south. Now he's gone north again to Caesarea Philippi, the far northern extremes of Israel. Uh, still trying to get that alone time with his disciples for the one-on-one -on -one stuff he needs to do. And, of course, this chapter we see exactly what he was trying to accomplish Time of preparation is ending, and again, as Luke pointed out, his face is increasingly set toward Jerusalem. And in this process, he has this final interaction, this question and answer session with the disciples. Four questions. The first one's kind of a lead-in question. He's who people say that I am. I mean, it's a significant question. Reputation's important. Knowing how we're perceived by the public is important. Proverbs talks about that. Good name is better than silver or gold. Important to have a good name. But the real point here is to, is to frame the, the question that comes next, to prepare the disciples um, for the critical question. He says, who do people say that I am? 
That's actually a pretty easy question to answer because you're, you know, somebody else, Elijah, or prophet. One of the prophets that was told, maybe John the Baptist. But then comes the second question. Who do you say that I am? Huge question. What I think is really significant about the question is that he asked them, who do you say that I am, not who do you think that I am? You know, it would have been easy for Jesus to say, who do you think that I am? Well, let me think about this for a while. As parents, we know how this game is played. You know, your child comes to you with a request that you, you know is, it, the answer is no, but you don't want to crush them with the no, so what do you say? I'll think about it, right? Right? They got it figured out. They know that means no, it's never going to happen. But, right. but you, cause you can think about something forever. There's no commitment in just thinking about something. So we asked him, who do you say that I am? Because when we have to put the answer into words, it suddenly becomes concrete, and we suddenly incur a measure of accountability. But you said, that's again, something we as parents know. When you put it to words, you suddenly become accountable for it. So Peter is the one that speaks up. He says, you are the Christ. And that's from the word Christos, from Creo. It means to anoint or to schmear. It's directly related to the, um, the Hebrew Mashiach, the Aramaic Mashiha, both of which mean to like rub with oil or smear as a means of identifying. It's an identification. You are the one called on, prepared for this moment, which is why we see things like this throughout Scripture. But Peter's question is, you are, or rather Peter's answer is, you are the Christ. Can't overestimate the importance of that. You are the one. It reflects back to John the Baptist's questions. When he sent messengers to Jesus, he said, ask, them, ask Jesus this question. Are you the one we've been waiting for, or do we wait for another? There are many people who were anointed in the history of Israel as, as ruler, as leader, as prophet, as priest. Are you the one? That completely unique one for whom we wait. Are you the Christ? So Peter states it plainly, perfect confession of Jesus. He says, you are the Christ, you are the one sent by God, the one for whom we have waited. He's got it right. I'm sure Peter would have been happier if Jesus had just left it there. That's kind of how a lot of us are in our, our confession of faith. We articulate who the person of Jesus is. We get that part right. And if we're not careful, we leave it there. But Jesus doesn't leave the matter there. Jesus doesn't stop with simple confession. Now, we all know Romans 10, 9. Got it down path. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. We have that confessional definition. We think about the thief on the cross. We'll talk more about him. He's the one that said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Bam, he had it. Had eternal life right there. I wouldn't make light of either one of those moments, but there's more to be said in both of those situations than we sometimes think about. Because Jesus doesn't let it rest with a simple confession. The confession answers the question of who he is, but it doesn't answer the question, what does that mean? Jesus goes on to explain exactly what that means. 
He said, thou art the Christ. In verse 30, he warned them to tell no one about him. Verse 31, he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribe, be killed, and after three days rise again. I am sure none of them had that on their roadmap. There was not a single one of them when Peter said, thou art the Christ, were thinking about those kind of things. They were typical Jews. They had a perspective about the Messiah. He was going to come and you know, lead an army and drive the Romans out and reestablish Israel and reestablish the, you know, the true and proper worship of the true God, all that stuff, right? They probably figured out that the military thing is not going to happen by this point. But they're still thinking in those same terms about a nationalistic leader. And to suggest that he would willingly surrender to the religious authorities so that he could be put to death and rise again. I am sorry, that just does not fit. I love verse 32. So Peter, or rather he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Let yourself do, you know, do the visual on that. Right. Jesus explained to the disciples, okay, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to tell you what that means. It means we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed to the, you know, to the religious authorities, and they're going, to, they're going to treat me horribly, and that's going to include my crucifixion, death, and burial, and then I'll raise again, right? And as he's doing that, it says Peter took him aside. Now, we, you can't be sure from the terminology if, if Peter actually like grabbed him and pulled him aside, or if it was more of like, Jesus you know, he somehow moves him away from the crowd, from the, uh, from the other disciples, and he begins to rebuke him. That word begin is important. It's the word akari. It means that's like the main point. Like Peter had just launched into his rebuking of Jesus, and he was just getting to the main point, and Jesus just shuts him down. Shuts him down. Turning around, verse 33, seeing the disciples, because they're all looking at him, staring like, where is this going? Turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. It's amazing how fast Peter has gone from a student, head of the class, the one guy to get it right, to you just failed the whole semester. You got the whole thing wrong. In fact, you're so wrong, Peter, that right now you are a spokesman for the evil one himself. You are speaking the things of the evil one himself. What a drastic fall. And the fall was not because he didn't get Jesus' identity right. It's because he didn't get the meaning of that right. He's failing at the second question. What does it mean? Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus' terminology is really critical here. When he says setting your mind, right? That's that word phroneo. It talks about the whole frontal lobe thing, right? Where our rational thought lives. But it's, it's not a word that speaks as much to process. When we think about thinking, we tend to think of the process of thinking. This isn't that word. That would be the word logizome from which we get logic, the process. This is more thinking in terms of the material that we use to think from. The assumptions, the values, Whatever data we have accumulated for them, it's all of their experiences with Jesus up to this point. This particular word speaks of the material from which our thought processes move. So what is Jesus saying to Peter? 
He's saying, Peter, you're wrong here. You're seriously wrong. You're so wrong you become a mouthpiece for the devil himself, not because your thought processes are wrong, but because you're moving from the wrong assumptions. You are moving from the assumptions, the values, the ideas, the principles of this world, not the principles of the kingdom of God. And that is such an easy mistake for any of us to make. It's the most natural mistake for us to make because these are the values, the rules, the assumptions, the principles that we grew up with. They're things we've learned in, in life. They're the life lessons we have accumulated, how things work. Jesus says to Peter, because you're operating from those kinds of perspectives, the things I'm saying to you aren't making sense. Of course, when I say to you, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, lay down my life, be crucified, die, and yeah, be buried and resurrect too. None of that makes any sense to Peter because Peter's not operating from a worldview that allows for any of that. It's, your, it's the basis from which you're thinking. Not so much you're using worldly reasoning as your values, your priorities, your assumptions are of the world. Peter, your, th your thinking is based on the things of this world. A critical point for us as believers to get. Verse 34, he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them. Now, isn't that significant? It started with the disciples and then Peter. Peter taking Jesus aside. Peter blowing it. And then Jesus looks at the disciples and the multitude. This is not something just for like the elite, you know, the disciples. This is not just something for a select few. This is like when the coach says, okay, everybody in. I want the offense. I want the defense. I want special teams. I want the band. I want the cheerleaders. And if we can get folks out of the stands, we'll take them too. Because this is so important. Everybody has to be in on this. Jesus brings everybody in. It is absolutely critical. He summoned the multitude and said to them, here's the foundation from which the Christian must operate. He's saying, take everything else that you based all your decisions on, set it aside. Verse 34, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Self-denial, embrace of the cross, and a conscious decision to follow him. Now, that's how radical to you. Think about this for a moment. Think about this. When we hear the word cross, like take up your cross, we import or we have all of this information about that. We hear cross, we think Jesus dies on the cross, horrible death, he is buried, and he's resurrected. And so that's our visual, right? So we can sing. You know, when I survey the wondrous cross, I love that old hymn. It's incredible, right? But see, I can call it a wondrous cross because I know the whole story. This is the very first time Jesus has used that word in Mark's gospel. Nobody's said anything to this point about anybody taking up any cross. They only have one visual of the cross. A horrific instrument of death for the worst of the criminals, for the worst of crimes. There is absolutely nothing positive in their world that could even conceivably be attached to the cross unless maybe the person on it was somebody you really hated. There's, no, there's nothing good about this. So when he says, deny yourself, okay, I can I maybe work with that one. 
take up your cross, I'm sorry, I have nothing from which that makes any sense at all. I put myself in the, in the disciples' place. I put myself in the place of the, of the, of the multitudes that were there. The people fought. Makes zero sense to me. I can't process that in a way that makes any sense. So I've got to completely change the basis from which I move forward. The disciples had to completely rethink what that word meant to them. And at this point, they're not ready to do that yet. Go back to the thief on the cross. We talk about the thief on the cross, his confession being enough. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Actually, a little more was said than just that. Mark's gospel doesn't carry it all, but you put the gospels together. It starts with the other thief hurling insults at Jesus. And what is the good thief? What does he say? He said, we're here justly. We deserve what we have done. He, he freely confesses he has nothing of himself that warrants anything other than the cross. I'm a thief. I belong here. We're murderers. We belong here. And then he says, this guy's done nothing. He affirms the complete and total innocence of Christ. And then he says to Jesus, now think about this for a minute. The thief said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That guy had the whole package. That thief, we have no idea if he ever heard Jesus preach or teach or how he got the message or where he got his data from the basis of his thinking, how he managed to construct the basis of his thinking, all of his assumptions, all of his values, that he was able to say to Jesus, you, upon your death on this cross, will come into your kingdom, and when you come into your kingdom, you remember me. He understood perfectly who Jesus was. That's why he could say that. So his confession was more than just identifying Jesus as Christ. His, like, his confession was identifying everything that Jesus had said would be part and parcel of that. Messiah, not just the Savior of the Jews in a political or a national or military sense, but everything that it meant to be as Messiah, Jesus was. The thief on the cross got all of it. And his confession included all of it. If anyone would come after me, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. It is the baseline from which every one of us must operate if we have any expectation of a normative, from a biblical, percent, biblical perspective, Christian life. You can't do it from worldly values, worldly assumptions. When Jesus said, take up his cross, it was radical, it was demanding from their worldview, it was ridiculous, and it was absolute. There's no halfway in that equation. Verse 35, he gives the reasons for this kind of a, of, a, of a decision. Frankly, if you tell that to me, I'm looking at it from the perspective of a first century Jew. If you want to come after me, uh, deny yourself. Okay, take your for cross, forget it. Not going to happen, period. I have, no, I have no reason to do that. I'm not guilty of those kinds of crimes. I have no reason to take up my cross. Verse 35, he gives the explanation of why that is so absolutely necessary. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake shall save it. 
If you would prosper in the things of the kingdom, you must abandon your principles, your ideas, your priorities, and all the other assumptions that have previously formed the basis for your most important decisions in life. The question, the whole matter revolves two words, save and lose. Save. To save from destruction. To rescue. And that's exactly how Jesus meant here. To save from destruction, which is to lose one's life. It is the destruction of one's soul. What's Jesus saying here? If anybody would save his life, he would lose it. He's not talking about desire. He's talking about ability. There's not a one of us through any measure of effort, can do anything to save our souls from destruction. Zero. Nothing. Totally incapable. Fool's errand to think that we can. You know, one thing that we as adults do, I think it's part of our DNA, we like to prepare for crises. Right? Think of how much you do, as, as an adult, is preparation for crisis. You may, you know, you get... A savings account, preparation for crisis. Stockpile food, preparation for crisis. Think about the argument you had at the state fair. So the next time that crisis happens, you'll have a better response. So many things that we do are preparation for crisis, right? You can, you can spend your whole life preparing for a crisis. Be fully and completely prepared for a crisis only to find out you're prepared for the wrong crisis. Jesus tells a parable. Well, actually, it starts in the Old Testament. Psalm 49 reads this way. Um, Why should I fear the days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounded me? Even those who trust in their wealth, who boast in the abundance of their riches, no man by any means can redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of a soul is costly. He should cease trying forever. He should live on eternity and not undergo decay. You can't save enough. You can't earn enough. You can't accomplish enough of whatever it is you're trying to accomplish or save or do to pay for a soul. Jesus put it this way. Uh, He told a parable in Luke chapter 12. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, at least he understood what was important. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool. Fool. All of this that you've done, all this work you've done, you planted fields, built, tore down barns, built bigger barns, stuffed them full. You fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. The man has spent his whole life preparing for the wrong crisis. He had prepared for famine, he had prepared for fire, he had prepared for war, he had prepared all this stuff, but he was not prepared for one thing. When his creator would say to him, tonight your soul is required of you, you will give an answer. Now, by the way, we need to, as responsible people, be doing that other stuff. We need to be prepared for that other stuff. That's a good thing to do. not saying you shouldn't. But that pales in comparison. There is no comparison with preparing for the other crisis when we stand before our creator 
and we give an account for what we've done with our lives. The fact of the matter is none of us will have an answer for that. None of us will have what we need to have in that moment unless we have the presence and the power of the Spirit of God within us testifying that we are His, and that only comes by His shed blood. It is only by embracing the cross and all that it means that we can possibly hope to have that answer. It really all comes down to our assumptions, our priorities, our values. What, form, what forms the decisions we make every day? We're so quick, I think it's part of our Western mind, to think about our process of reasoning. How do I think about this correctly? But if we're not starting from the right basis, from the right assumptions, values, the right data, the Gospels, that's the data we use, we're never going to get to the right decision. In the decisions we face every day, most importantly, the decisions that reflect, that impact our relationships, our relationship with our God, our relationship with one another, our relationship with the lost, I really, I really am grateful that God gave Pastor Joyce and I that encounter with that person at the fair because it shook me up. It made me stop and ask myself, what am I responding out of here? I mean, am I responding out of, you know, John? Not a healthy place to respond from, right? right? Am, I, am I responding out of the fact this woman is insulting my intelligence? No, not a good place. She was not um, a place of responding out of her obvious ignorance of a lot of truth, et cetera, et cetera. No, none of that is where I wanted to respond to her from. I wanted to respond to her simply from the work that Christ had accomplished in me that I might even extend love and compassion to her if for no other reason than her teenage daughters were listening. And she walked away fully satisfied that she had shut us down. But one of her daughters came back. We didn't say anything. I, think, I don't think we even reacted with the girl. But she spent a lot of time looking at all the material, getting comfortable being in our environment. See, that didn't come from me. That didn't come from me at all. That came from the, the work of the Spirit in our lives reaching out to her. And that we didn't respond to the woman with the vitriol with which she had spoken to us. That's coming not from a process of reasoning. My reasoning was gone. But from the basis from which we responded. His accomplished work in us. To do that in the smallest of ways, in the absolute smallest of ways, had to deny myself. I know what I wanted to say take up a really small cross because it wasn't really asking that much but it was asking something like that and follow him well, if Jesus was here right now I, I don't do the what would Jesus do thing right I do the what is Jesus doing thing right what is Jesus doing in this moment speaking through me speaking to those around me that I'm praying for because they're the ones interacting right We've got to come from that basis. We have to come from that basis because anything else that we bring to the discussion is completely of us and is worthless. 
and does not prepare us in the least for that moment when we will give an answer. I, I, I hope what I'm, I'm saying here is, is clear because um, what I'm really saying is that I must determine to live my life in such a way that I draw close to him, I bring others close to him, I strengthen his church, his family, his kingdom in such a way that my life is built on a foundation that when I respond in a situation, that's what I respond out of. Because if I don't, I'm wasting my time. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. And this passage of scripture is genuinely challenging to us. I can only imagine what the disciples thought when Jesus said, take up your cross. As ridiculous as it sounds to us, it must have sounded even more absurd to them. But it is, Father, exactly what you tell us we have to do as part of following you. And, Father, we know, if we accept your word at all, we know that there's nothing short of that that will prepare us for eternity. The stakes are that high, Lord. So we ask for your help, Lord. We ask for your help as we go through this day, this week, each of our days. Father, help us to act in such a way, first, that we're building that basis, the assumptions, the ideas, based on who you are and what you reveal of yourself in your word, what you reveal of yourself in your church, Lord, that we can build that basis to respond from that by the help of your spirit, Lord, that through the week, that would guide and determine how we think, how we act toward others, Lord, and in the way, draw them close to you as well. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.